You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit Irreverent FM for more content from my friends. Hello, hello, and welcome to Bad Words, an ex-evangelical podcast where we give toxic theology the read that it deserves by taking another look at some of the books that have been given major influence in evangelical Christianity. I am Janice Legata, and this is a meeting of the Bad Book Club. We are reading The Bait of Satan by John Bevere, biting into it one chapter at a time. I'll read the opening paragraph and give a few thoughts, and then join one of the members of the Bad Book Club for a discussion. In the end, I'll read the closing paragraph and give some closing thoughts, all with the intention of leaving you free to think your own thoughts about the chapter, the book, and all things really. So, without further ado, let's get into... Chapter 7, The Sure Foundation. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Isaiah 28, 16. Whoever believes will not act hastily. A person who acts hastily is an unstable person because his actions are not properly founded. This person is easily moved and swayed by the storms of persecutions and trials. For example, let's look at what happened with Simon Peter. Oh, John. John, 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 John. We are now in chapter 7, we are about to be halfway through this book, and at this point, every interaction with the book just seems more and more surreal, and frightening, honestly, because there are not enough words to say how bad this book is, in every way, from every angle, and yet it has been platformed, it has been pushed, and allowed to prosper with virtually no pushback, and for why? John Bevere, as we have already established, is a basic bummer of a white man. There's nothing specifically compelling about him. We're halfway through this book, and we don't even have any more specifics about his story, so it's not like this book is a testimony. With every chapter, it becomes more and more clear that this book is a tool to be used by abusive leaders to keep abusing, and that's it. This book serves no other purpose, and I think this chapter spells that out pretty clearly. Every chapter in this edition of the book starts with a testimonial from someone who's read it and a highlighted thought from the chapter, chosen, I assume, by John himself. So the highlighted thought from this chapter is, What we learn in the presence of God cannot be learned in the presence of men. Which, if true, would pretty much rightfully and wonderfully render this entire book void. So, of course, JB is about to be on some big-time bullshit to position himself, his words, his awful, abusive misinterpretations of Scripture as the presence of God. He starts with a random verse from Isaiah, I think just because it uses the word from his chapter title, a sure foundation, and then jumps to the story of Simon Peter. So I hope you're warmed up for some Olympic-level mental gymnastics as we approach some extremely uneven bars with book club member number six, Jenna. I've been on this journey for a very long time. And actually, it started with a church plant in 2004 that turned in, that was my college internship for my degree in music ministry. And the man that started it, um, his name is John Coleman, and I want to give him all the credit because that people group I, even now, believe what we really, really wanted was uh, to provide a space in the Eugene community. That was a free space that we wanted wanted to have good music. We wanted to have spaces during worship for art. We wanted to have spaces for writing. I, I don't even think we knew it at the time, but it was never about saving people. And I'm really proud of that. And he, um... I remember in one of our our internship meetings, he we were reading, uh, I think, a, a verse in Lamentations. And 
I, he said out loud, I don't know if I agree with that scripture. I don't remember what it was. And I remember thinking, what? <laughs> because I've had that thought, but you're not allowed, you are not allowed to say that. And then just like, kind of like, it kind of cracked something open in my mind that if, if my, if my mentor and pastor is going to say, he's not sure if he agrees with this, then it's okay to go there. And he gave me a copy of uh, Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell. And it just kind of, I just ate the red pill and fell off the deep end into, and I tried over time, you know, I got my degree. Um, I, I got a job as a Christian school um, music teacher and basketball coach, but predictably that would have been in 08. They <laughs> couldn't afford to pay me. <laughs> so um, that had to go. And, but that led me into finding a worship leader, youth minister job at a little church which I got um, let go from for talking. I didn't, I did not understand the politics of, of church. I was too honest about it. I, I uh, was really proud of that youth group though, because it became a thing and I'm still, I still talk to those kids, but it was, it was devastating to lose because I was disappeared and you know, that just makes me look like a flake when really I was talking about things like, is the virgin birth really a hill we have to die on? Stuff like that. Like, I should never have said any of that out loud. So I have moved on from trying to be a part of anything and fixing anything and just being separate. And I've allowed myself to just, to not believe things. And I, it really frightens me. And I, uh, I only feel comfort in what I want to tell my friends that are struggling. Like, don't be afraid of hell. You do not have to have that. I mean, if that's like nagging on my inside, but uh, I feel confident in what I am confident in telling others, if that makes sense, and telling my own kids. And I've, I've decided, I've recently realized about myself that I'm going through some kind of spiritual, PH, it's not PhD, PTSD, because my husband, he grew up totally entrenched in church, but he does not have the hangups that I have that... I realize I've come out with my five-year-old, like when I caught him, like watching some kind of book of Job Bible story at my mother-in-law's house. And I was like, oh, I have to protect him at all costs. I don't want him to hear Old Testament stuff. And everybody else just kind of blows it off. So I am trying to relax in that area and not be so protected. Because, you know, with kids, especially if you forbid something, it becomes that much more attractive. So I'm trying to loosen up in that area. But right now where I'm at is I'm accepting a lot of the things that are ridiculous in the Bible and my upbringing. And I'm just making fun of it and studying it because that's how I have to stay sane. <laughs> and then here I come with this book. When you, when you pitched that one, I was like, oh, yes, absolutely. This was a staple. Like, my upbringing was very much charismatic, slain in the spirit, speaking in tongues, uh, dancing around, prophecies, thus saith the Lord. We were joking before. Like, I don't know when church will, be, will end. I do know I'll be standing up the whole time. I know that. Onward Christians. All those, the soldier and war analogies are disturbing, very disturbing, the violence. And, how, and what a natural part, how okay it is. So I'm ready to chew up and spit out this book. So you've, you've read it before. I haven't. It is, it's, like one of the, it's like one of the things that missed me because it was my mom's book. I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to read my mom's book. 
Um, but I it was always around and always referred to, and I know about it, you know. So I never actually read it, and that's why I was like, oh, I think I can do this one because I understand it, but I'm not familiar with it. So what chapter did you have? Seven. What was it about? Uh, the Shore Foundation. And what was it about? I don't know. Oh, it was about offense, right? It, is that what the whole book, is it just over and over again? Because I, I thought if you're going to give me one chapter and feel that that is enough, then I'll, I will take your lead on that. But it is enough. I don't understand what else is in this book. So it's, okay, thus saith the Lord. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Like, I don't know what that means. Whoever believes will not act hastily. A person who acts hastily is an unstable person because his actions are not properly founded. The person is easily moved and swayed by the storms of persecutions and trials. Don't we want persecutions and trials? Isn't that what they always want? To be persecuted? And I just wrote down, sometimes an asshole is an asshole. This whole offense thing is, I'm offended, honestly, (laughs) because it just gives people the right to be, if you have the power, to be an ass. Yeah, and I sent sent everybody his definition of offense, like his little... Is that the deceptive trap? Yeah. Okay. So that's that's the best definition of offense that we get from him? Right. Oh, Luke 17, 1. And like, I can see how people would fall into this trap. Because he uses, he translates a Greek word. You know, you must know what you're talking about if you're going to bring up the Greek. So we use Luke 17, 1. Then we jump over to 2 Timothy. Mm-hmm. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, correcting those who are in opposition. In opposition to what? That's what I wrote. Opposition to what? Opposition to you. Mm-hmm. There's two categories. Those who have been treated unjustly. So they don't talk about that at all the people who are actually treated unjustly and those who believe they've been treated unjustly. One of my questions, if they believe so strongly that they've been treated unjustly, why is that wrong? Yeah. One of my issues with this book is that he never really, you know, defines offense. And so then he just uses the word offense interchangeably with pretty much any, any emotion. Yes. Like, oh, they were offended. They were offended. And then he doesn't define anything else either. So even, Right at the beginning of your chapter, whoever believes will not act hastily. What does that mean? Yes. What does that? Okay, like, so, stop, like, to stopping and thinking? Like, maybe not, like, jumping down somebody's throat right away and cooling off a bad temper? I don't know. Sometimes you can be treated unjustly, feel it. I wrote this down as an example of a dumb example. Like, if I have a hard conversation with someone or someone has had a hard conversation with me, like drawing a boundary in a situation or addressing something that they are offended by. The result of that, I can think personally, some several situations, I feel treated unjustly, but there's nothing I can do about it. They don't agree. Mm -hmm. Why is that wrong? You know, like, why is that tension wrong? Yeah. Don't trust anybody who pushes back. And this is really a form of brainwashing. It's like, I don't know anyone who has acted hastily and leaving their church. If anything, it's not happening soon enough. You know, I mean, just like hanging around, going because going for the family, trying new places because, you you know, maybe it's you. Just realizing, like, no, they're all the same. At the end, like, 
there's a new church that is meeting in, in the skating rink in town. And, uh, you know, you know what would have been fun is if your church reopened the skating rink. Okay, fine. Have your little service, but then open it up. Make it so that people can come. That would be cool. That would show you're engaging with that community in that area. Okay, why not do that with your church? And then you go, I go on their website, and at, in the end, it's like, what's the doctrine? Infallible word of God. Trinity. Blood of Jesus. It all boils down to being the same, no matter how happy and nice and perky and trendy. And it just always is the same. But always at the end of the day, there's an in and an out. You know, that's, they have to get saved. Which is a lot of what this chapter is about. He goes into the story of Peter saying who he is. And then one of my other issues with this book is the way he puts himself in all these characters, knows what they're thinking, tells us what, we're, what they're thinking. And, and in this case, like tells us what Jesus is thinking and what his intentions are. It, it's alarming that he, especially that, well, I'll, I'll get to it when we get to it, but like that he is the anointed speaker. When we listen to an anointed minister speak, and I wrote down, a.k.a. you, like, I, that's a red flag. <laughs> or as we read a book, which you wrote, anointed speaker? Yes. It's very brazen. Yeah, I wrote that down too. Listening to a minister or reading someone else's book, how lucky for John Bevere to be, you know, the man who does both. Yes. I, is he still out there doing this? Oh, absolutely. I was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt that, I mean, this book is coming up on, what, 30 years old. So I was like, surely he's just let it rest and he's just not mentioning it anymore. He has to know this is ridiculous. Like, But then talking with Faye about her chapter and she on her own accord went to look and see what the Bavirs are up to. And as recently as last month, they have a podcast episode about offense. And they have they have a book club. An opposite book club? Talking about this book. Well, this is probably a good time for them with all the people actually speaking up and speaking out, it's coming back to they're offended. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. I used to own a business, so I have a concept. In what business would you be hemorrhaging customers? And mm-hmm. and not, my business partners would, like, every bad fucking Yelp review, it was my ass. And I was like, well, okay, I'm sorry. The customer's not always right. I will not be treated like shit. I'm sorry. I just won't. I'm too old and I have dignity. I'm not going to kiss somebody's ass for $4.25 coffee. That was a big deal, losing one customer. How can they watch the people walk away and like tell them exactly why they're leaving with very specific words and actions and then think that problem is us? If you're losing customers, you have to think about why and you do what you can to get them back. Some people, you know, different places in faith would probably be in their church if if their leaders said, oh, wow, this is just the way it's been for decades. I did not know that you were suffering from this behavior, and I didn't even know this was treatment. You know, I was treating you a certain way. Like uh, Just a little, just an admission of, wow, that was hurtful. I apologize. Wow, that was hurtful. You need to check your heart about why that was hurtful. You were hurt by me, then you are in a place, you're not in a place to receive. It's disturbing. You're in no place to receive from me, the minister who has the word that you need. The anointed one. So with that whole Jesus and Peter thing, like he asked them the question, you know, who do men say I am? And they answer. And then he asked them a second question. But who do you say that I am? And the way John Bevere frames this, it's like this, this confrontational gotcha. And I'm like, Jesus literally just asked them two questions. That was it. 
He looked at them and then asked them point blank, but who do you say I am? What's with the point blank? Like, why? Yeah, a gotcha moment. Yeah. I've heard this, you know, this, is this, where, where is this? This is Matthew? Yeah, Matthew. 16, 13. So, like, part of my transition out of church was becoming more of, so I found uh, Shane Claiborne several years ago and just kind of went into the, yep, red letter Christian. That's where I identify right now. I've kind of moved on from defining myself that way, but still kind of entertain that. But this is a passage that I would immerse because it's a red letter passage. So I, I feel more averse in the Jesus scriptures. And I just don't understand pulling this from that. Boggles the mind, really. Well, he says, you know, he asked him that question. Gotcha. I'm sure there was a confused, fearful look on most of the disciples' faces as they pondered this. Why fearful? I was like, doesn't perfect love cast out all fear? Why are these dudes afraid of Jesus? Why would you be afraid of Jesus? Yes. So if I was sitting with my friends and I was like, who, who have you heard that they say I am? And uh, they say, and then I say, well, who do you think I am? Even myself, if someone asked me that, I would have to, I would have to stop and think for a minute. Because it is true, the public has a certain understanding of who you are, and those who you live more intimate life with probably have a drastically different way of viewing you. So why wouldn't you stop and think and be like, okay, now what do I think? I don't understand. I don't understand pulling anything from there. He located their hearts with... So it's like they're questioning who he is, and that's where they went wrong, living off the speculations of others. They had not confronted themselves. Then he talks about Simon Peter, and I wrote down, what did he say about it? So Simon Peter was very hungry for the things of God, and I wrote down, he was also the dumbest and most impulsive of all of Jesus' disciples. The most hasty, would you say? Yes! He cut off a dude's fucking ear. I'm sorry, are we allowed to say that? Absolutely. Okay, like I can censor, but I'm very passionate about that. He cut off a fucking ear. Mm-hmm. And... He's so dumb, he was trying to chop the guy's head off. Miss, cut his ear off. Yeah, but their hearts were not as hungry to know the will of God as Peter's. How do you know that? A way to throw a whole group of people under a bus. I, let me tell you what Peter did. He is the ultimate people pleaser. Hello, I deny you three times. Just so that he could save face in a moment. Which, I mean, I probably would have done myself. Very relatable. But I'm, he's not going to be my inspiration. What happens? Jesus asks them, and uh, even even John Bevere says, he blurted out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I'm sure that Peter was like, uh, what does Jesus want to hear? What's he always telling us? He's a, you're the son of God. <laughs> he had not received this knowledge by hearing the opinions of others or by what he was taught, but God had revealed it to him. And I said, let me guess, John, God revealed all this to you as well. Which, if we're playing the Trinity game, if Jesus is the Father and the Son, if they're all one, then yes, wouldn't Jesus telling Peter that be the same as Father revealing that to Peter? And so it's like you said, Peter's running through his Rolodex. What what has he said? What is the right answer here? You're the son of you're the son of God. Mm-hmm. So we're we're in Matthew. Then he jumps over First John two twenty seven. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie just as it has taught you, and then it ends with a dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I don't appreciate jumping into the middle of First John. The word was, the word is, the word will be. This is all very, very mysterious language. You know, Jesus was the word. 
the word was God. Jesus was God. Like, if we're going to go there, don't jump over from Matthew and go over to John. At first, John. Anyways, I don't even. I, do you know what uh, translation he's using? Take a guess. I assume King James. New King James. Mm-mm. The original. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. Just like the things like the Bible translations. And like, I remember when I, I had a an NIV Bible and high school youth group and like I kind of felt like a little edgy for it you know like and now it's a uh, now the the gold standard is ESV I think I have no idea because but I know that Hillsong loved the message version that's so oh my god are people are okay with that the message wow wow but this chapter is such a conundrum because using that verse is basically saying, yeah, you are able to hear from God on your own. There are some things that God can only reveal to you. But then he takes that and twists it to there are some things God can only reveal to you through a minister or a book. Yes. And I just picture, I'm picturing my mom because I can see her in need of this and falling into it. And then me being raised in it, and it's and me falling out of it just of my natural like in the natural I probably shouldn't say that just not even trying to be thought provoking but just like kind of falling off the path like oh here's this book and then here's this book and then here's this book and my college education really freaking me out because I, I was learning about actual Bible history and actual like hermeneutics and all of that shit and just kind of happened naturally and it's very bizarre to me how like this book is probably still in my parents' bathroom. Next time I go up there, um, I'm going to, let me check. Yeah. Anointed minister. The entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Okay. Whose word? Are you talking about the Bible or are you talking about you? Because if it, if the word gives light and gives understanding to the simple, well, I'm a little bit insulted that you're calling me simple. And can I not just read the Bible? I, right. I'm like, this This simple faith is very complicated. The The things that you need to maintain it, it's a lot. Yes. Don't trust your emotions. Don't trust what you know, because what you think you know, you don't. Some things we, oh God, I even, I said, oh Jesus, I wrote, oh Jesus. Like, I just did it again. Some things we need to hear from God cannot be found in the Bible. <laughs> He said that! He wrote it! He did. I gotta stop yelling, I'm gonna wake my kid up. Yeah, and then he has that whole story. Oh, the whom shall we marry thing? Okay, I I wrote down, primed to to be controlled. This young couple are in, like, early relationship bliss, and then uh, some arrogant pastor says, you two are gonna get married. And you know what? It freaked the guy out. Rightfully so. I mean, she was already, she clearly was already there. I mean, this is how relationships work. Somebody realizes something first. It's not wrong that she was there and he wasn't. But then, like, yes, that probably put him into a, oh, my God, God said I have to do this. This opinion clearly means something to him. And then John Bevere being like, no, I won't marry you. Not until God has told you directly. Which just on the page before. Ugh. Which this whole this whole story. First of all, put it in put it in context. And let's be honest about what kind of young people these probably are. And where marriage, marriage is the goal, right? And so, yeah, this girl, yeah, maybe she's further down the road, but that's the only road available to her. Like, this is how you become a good woman, right? You got to get married. If the senior pastor told 
a 21-year-old girl who she's dating, she's going to marry, that's her big ticket. Yeah. That's the ticket to where you're supposed to be, what you said, marriage. Right. And I, I mean, we have no way of knowing this, but I assume the story would be much different if the guy had been all for it and the girl was like, hmm, I don't know. This full stop is not for women. John Bevere is an extremely white man. And, you know, there's just a level of misogyny in this brand of Christianity anyway. But, like, this story is just so disrespectful to this girl in every way. Yes. uh, I had an unmarried secretary. Of course she was. How many are just like the disciples Jesus confronted? They live on what they have heard others say or preach. And, like, well, a few paragraphs ago, you said we need to hear things from God that can't be found in the Bible. So I would have thought that meant preaching, but okay. The opinions and statements of others are taken as truth without seeking the counsel or witness of the Spirit. But Jesus literally asked them what people were saying. Like, Jesus was asking for hearsay. I totally, totally blew up this young couple's relationship. Just because he could. Oh, yes. I sent them off and said there'd be no reason to meet again. He was relieved. She was very upset. This poor girl. This was a time of testing for her. And I said, it wasn't testing. Her happy relationship was blown up by a pastor prematurely declaring marriage. The guy freaked out and the the other pastor breaks them up. (laughs) It's just a really sad story. Oh, if you marry without, this this is my personal favorite. If you marry without God's revealing this as his perfect will to you, when storms come, and they will come, <laughs> you will have questions. What if I'd married another girl? What if I would, would I have these problems? I should have made sure it was God's will. I feel trapped. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell you guys something. It's a, it's a married secret. At some point in your marriage, you will wonder if you married the wrong person. At some point in your marriage, you will feel trapped. At some point in your marriage, you would think that this probably wasn't God's will for me because of da-da-da-da-da. Sometimes you need to escape. Sometimes it's just a busy time at work and I'm blowing things a little bit out of proportion. I do have it really good. <laughs> you know, you have legal, a legally binding contract with the state to live your life attached to this other person until you die. There is something inherently suffocating about that mentally. Why some people live together for so many years, get married and split up. I'm sure just in the back of your mind, yes, it's a huge adjustment. So wondering those things are not is not going against God's will. It's a, it's called a marriage. You committed your life to somebody. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a shit show sometimes. Which he knows because he goes on to talk about how awful the first five years <laughs> isn't that supposed to be the best time? Like everybody says, the first five years are great, and then year six and seven that's where things kind of start to uh, you know, and then you know by the time we get back to year fifteen it's fun again and it's just. that she was terrible that's why oh my god oh another word that totally set like told strife I clearly refused to let go of it natural hope was gone because of strife and pride that entered our marriage natural oh that doesn't that the word in the natural does that phrase just make you cringe in the natural strife these are words that are only used in this in this circle. It's absolute Christianese. Yes, it is. Strife, the natural. Oh, my God. Offense. He said, we grew from the conflicts by forgiving one another and learning from them. And I was like, oh, oh, you were offended? 
and you had to forgive each other? That's rocket science. I confide in her more than in any other person. You do? You confide in your wife? Your wife? Low bar. Yeah, your wife? I mean, come on. I am not impressed that you confide in your wife more than, especially being a, a, a straight Christian preacher. Of course you only confide in your wife. Oh my God, is she your best friend too? Oh, his book dedication. She is his second best friend after Jesus. What does he say? He oh says, yes, yes. I remember just cringing like, Ooh. I have. That's when I knew that I wasn't. I had to print this out because I was like, if I am offended during the book dedication, I need to have paper for this. Here we go. Yeah, number one, my deepest appreciation to my wife Lisa, who next to the Lord is my most cherished friend. Yes. Oh, my most cherished friend. Oh, how asexual. <laughs> and then, like, you know you know the emoji that's just, like, the flat eyes and the flat mouth? That's my response to that. <laughs> and cringe. <laughs> my most... If, if Chad described me as his most cherished friend, I'd be like, I better be your most cherished friend. Now, I don't really want you to be my most cherished friend, but I better be your most cherished friend. <laughs> one, of, one of my... Um, most cherished friends. We always joke about like, this is why our husbands aren't our best friends. Cause I got married when I was just a little bit older than normal. And so it's just really hard for me to let go of my like secret single behavior, you know, like eating trash food and, you know, watching trash television and that kind of stuff. I can't text my husband and be like, I'm really looking forward to eating this, these ramen noodles for lunch alone during nap while the kids are asleep. He's going to be like, that's pathetic. But I text my friend and she's like, yes, what flavor? That's a whole other discussion. Just the Christian idea of marriage and how you're supposed to be everything to each other. And I'm like, that is terrifying to me. Disturbing. I have several friends who got married right out of high school. Ten years later, divorced. A lot of my friends who got married super young are divorced now. And that's not a judgment on them. It's it's actually like good for you for being able to be your own person. I'm sorry you had to go through that, obviously, but it was a, it's a weird swing. There's the people who married real young, and then there's people like me who are in the mid-30s just now having kids. Like it's, it's very interesting that there's so many people from where I did most of my growing up in youth group church who are married, getting married later, having kids later, because we really didn't, you either were going to do it right away, or like us, we just didn't want to fuck it up. It's weird. All right. I have a face palm that I wrote down. Sorry I'm bouncing around so much. Before I met Lisa, I prayed diligently for the woman I would one day marry. That choice was the second most important decision of my life. Next to obeying the gospel, nudge, nudge. Because of praying and waiting on God's choice for my mate. I hate the word mate. Ugh, my mate. I mean, uh, okay, are we animals or are we not, okay? I thought I would have the problems others had in marriage. Oh, how wrong I was. God selected a wife for me who was the desire of my heart. She exposed the selfish immaturity that was hidden in me. And there was much, lol, to run from the conflict by choosing divorce or blaming her would have only buried my immaturity. I feel like we're reading his journal. That's, you know what I mean? Would have only buried my immaturity under another layer of counterfeit protection called offense would it be called offense or would it be called immaturity yes john not everything is coded as offense immaturity is what it is you jump into a marriage at 20 years old did both of you how did you ever live on your own 
I mean, it's of course, immaturity is not immaturity is not a sin. I don't know else else to say it. It's okay to be immature. And the thing about it is, if you are immature, you don't know. You don't know. I only look back on my life the last 15 years and think, yikes, how immature. Thank God that I didn't have a MySpace when I was in high school. There'd be some embarrassing shit on there, and I feel bad for Gen Z because I'm embarrassing now. I don't know how, but I'll find out in about 10 years. The, the immaturity, that's okay. It's I fine. Mean, yeah. It's part of life, part of the human natural experience. Natural. And you know what? Like, immature people, my, my relationships when I was immature, and I'm not going to label myself mature, but, like, I moved on from relationships, and it hurt, and it felt unnatural sometimes, but, like, it was, it is what it is as far as friendships and relationships. When someone's immature, they get left behind, and that is their problem. And it's not even bad. It's not even necessarily bad. It's literally life. Oh, oh, the italics. Some of you who are reading this may be thinking, I was not saved when I was married. Like, John, you are doing... He's covering all the bases. He's covering all the bases. I wrote you to this paragraph. Some of you may not have married in the will of God, even as believers, to enter into the blessing of God for your marriage. You must repent of not seeking his counsel before marrying, and he will forgive you. Settle it in your heart that two wrongs do not make a right. To break a covenant because of offense is not the answer, because I guess one's offended that the other one's not saved or something. That's the exact point where I wrote, stop using this word. (laughs) (laughs) Stop it. Stop it. I, as my anger about how this book has been allowed to influence so many people. In so many lives. That anger is only matched by my sadness for John Bevere. You bum me out, man. Like, you are sad, and it makes me sad. Yes. Because to have this view of God, where people, people who were saved, apparently, somehow didn't marry in the will of God. Everything, everything, everything is negative for him, and everything is coming from a bad place. And if even the things coming from God. I'm like, why is God doing so many, so many negative things to try to produce good in people? If you are a good God, why do you need badness to do your work? I, yes. Why? I'm just imagining, like, I had a heated exchange with a couple friends of mine. I, I, I just keep quiet a lot because I, want, I need there to be peace in my life. So... I need a shirt that just says, do not engage. Like I, I just don't because, you know, arguing doesn't change anybody's mind, but somehow this is what, what I call church is like every, every few weekends we get together with our neighbors and, and a couple other friends and we just commiserate about our kids are all the same age. And it's just, it's, it's an easy place to be around, but every now and then we get a little too, we get a little too into the drinks and then stuff starts coming up and I do not know how the crucifixion came up on fun night, but it did. And I said, I said out loud, I said, Jesus didn't have to die. And like, I thought I was going to get crucified. And they said, if it would save the whole world and like, you know, somebody started tearing up, it would save the whole world. I'm sorry, but I, I, 
I would have to sacrifice my son. And then she kind of started crying. And I was like, well, yeah, the fact that you are saying that out loud, I'm glad you're crying. And I said, I'm sorry. I don't care what it is. I love all of you. But none, none, I'm not going to willingly give away one of my kids for you motherfuckers. And, and I said, honestly, neither would you. Are you disturbed by the, the act of sacrifice of your son? I don't believe, okay, we can go there for just a second. Let's, let's say the Jesus and God thing. I don't believe that Jesus was sacrificed by God. I think God, okay, so God sent his son, sure. Jesus went down a path and it led to his murder. That's what happened. Blood sacrifice is weird. It's weird. Absolutely. Especially because hovering over all of that, this God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, who wasn't created by anyone else, who isn't being run by anyone else. So this was a choice he made. Knowing that humanity would fall and he would need something to redeem them. Like God could have chosen anything, right? God could have been like, since I have decided that this is wrong, the way you guys are going to have to atone for this wrongness is eating 50 burgers next week. Like, it could have been anything. 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 And you chose it. And you know why? Let's just even just be full board into the belief. I'm sorry. God said sending Jesus as a sacrifice, which I don't think he did, but let's just pretend he did. That It's not empathetic for me. Do you know why? Because three days later, Jesus fucking came back. Okay? That He, he came back. So, not that what he went through wasn't horrific, but he came back in this story. In this and story. always knew he was going to. Yes, always knew he was going to. Let's up the stakes where he doesn't. Let's see what God does then. It's just, it's mind-blowing. So especially, because like, Christians are so obsessed with heaven, abortion, debate, like, a lot of these things just fall apart for me, because I'm like, I don't understand what your end game is. The whole goal right. is to get there. You're sparing, yeah, you, I've heard you say it before, they're being spared. This experience. This whole experience. That you allegedly don't want to be having. Like, you can't wait to get out of here. Right. And so, God sacrificing his son here, isn't that just bringing him home sooner? Yes. Like, oh, what did I... Uh, my heart grieves as I see how... What are we talking about? Numerous people. Oh, numerous people have told me of the many churches or ministry teams they have been a part of in only a short time. My heart grieves as I see how they are moved by trials and not by God's direction. And I said, or maybe they were treated poorly. It wasn't great. And they're free enough. To, they're free enough at this point to see it. Or, or in this case, I guess the trials are not God's direction. Cause sometimes they are. Right. Yeah. Which one is this? Or, Oh, this, Oh, this one really just makes my blood boil. They extol how wrong things are or how badly they and others were treated. I mean, that just really chaps my ass. It's just like how badly others were treated. They were treated. He's not even not denying the bad treatment. He's not even, they feel justified in their decisions, but their reasoning is only another layer of deception. deception. This is truly disturbing. It's awful. It is awful. The conditioning that keeps them from seeing the offense and their own character flaws. Being hurt by hurtful actions is a character flaw. Yeah. According to this theology. And their reasoning, their thinking about their feelings is wrong. Thinking about your feelings is especially wrong. Yeah. And only think on these things. Yeah, I even heard one man say, I'm on loan to this church. They make this. 
They make these statements so that if things get difficult, okay, and I, then I said, what things? Why is it normal for things to get difficult? If I buck authority by asking a little question, like, so he's prepping, like, he's prepping you. It's going to get difficult. It's going to get difficult. And then when it does, when you're slighted or treated treated wrong, wrongly, you're, you go back to this. You go, and, and then you get, you just, you behave. You behave. And that's a, even that, an anger about someone having the temerity to say, yeah, I'm on loan here. The idea that you would not belong to the church, that you might belong to yourself, blasphemy. Jesus, others, then you. You're at the bottom. That's joy. Joy. Sorry. (laughs) Happiness is fleeting. Joy is eternal. Whatever that means. Yeah, whatever the fuck. Uh, Oh, God. And then always going back to Peter, and I'm like, no, no, not Peter. I don't want to be Peter. Peter is who I relate to. It's not who I want to be. Can we just do John? The one he loved? Absolutely not. Right. The one closest to him, the the, the most humble one who didn't even name himself as the one he loved? No. Oh, then we jump to Peter. I hate this. The person. Then we go to Peter the scripture. Oh, this house in the sand. This chapter has way too much to have said nothing. Like, how do do you pull all these stories and marriage into this one chapter? That's, yes, it was real mindfuck. Um, But then completely nothing at the same time. It's nothing. It is the world's biggest nothing burger. Oh, we go from, yeah, from Matthew, then we go to First Peter, and then even at the bottom, he fits into First Corinthians. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. It's just so convenient to pick and choose these things and string them together as a coherent thought. And all it has is the word foundation in it, and it ties, and it ties into the rock. It ties into Peter being the rock of the church. Um, probably Peter was the rock of the church. I mean, it was a, it was like a, it, it kind of made sense for Jesus as, as a career move. Well, he does really want to make me happy. I will give him the church because he will do exactly what I want with it. Right. And again, the church was not, it was not these mega church structures. It was not one person being over hundreds, thousands of people. Like it just wasn't that. It was getting together and having dinner. Right. It was, it was hanging out with people that traditionally were marginalized for a variety of reasons. And then when he goes back to Peter and he talks about Jesus says something offensive and drives a bunch of people away. But then he talks about who left. Notice it was not a few as many. Some, no doubt, were the ones who were so quick to say earlier, you know, blah, blah, blah. So they were all for Jesus. Then he says this wild thing. And then they're like, oh, I can't. And I'm like, man, you are... I said, could it be that these people were afraid of leaving their church. Like, Jesus is introducing this new way of thinking, and most of them stayed put. What is he, what is he preaching now, they wonder? This is too far out for me. My dude! It's like, it's like, yes, you're saying it. It's, it's so weird how you, they circle, they get so close, and then, yes, exactly that. You want to know what uh, the rocks and the stones will cry out? We are the rocks and stones. The church isn't doing it. So who's doing it? The government's doing it. Uh, Planned Parenthood's doing it. United Way's doing it. People are doing it. The church, come on! If the church isn't going to do what God wants, the rocks and stones will do it, and they're doing it. That's what that means. It's happening outside the building. The way of Jesus is happening outside the building. And, plot twist, spoiler alert, it happened then, too, because... 
The religious leaders, and I circled that, were persecuting Jesus. The religious leaders. And that's the thing, is like the school of thought that you can change that machine. I, If you still think that, you know what? I'm glad you have an inspiration and that you're not just dead behind the eyes like I am. It's just good for you to have something, okay? I'm not trying to be condescending. If you think you can fix it, by all means, please. But I thought I could fix it, and it chewed me up and spit me out. And Same. Yeah. It can't be fixed. And just the dissonance. Um, I don't know how how you, John Bevere, can read these stories and how you don't put yourself in the place of the religious leaders. You are literally a religious leader. Because who who is in that character in your story? Is it me? Is it... Is it me and you, Jenna? Like, are we the religious leaders tormenting John Bevere? What, who are we in this story? I think, I think that we are the, uh, I, you know what, and this is the thing, is, you know, the, the, the language is such a part of your, of your indoctrination, so I don't really like what I'm about to say, but I haven't found the next way to say it. We are the prophets that don't have, that aren't welcome in our own homes. You know what I mean? Like... The Pacific Ocean is 30 miles away from me. You're about to fall into the Atlantic. Like, we are as far away in this country as we could possibly be. And so, you know, you have to work really fucking hard to find the people that are like-minded with you. It's not easy. And how how is he not the religious leader? And then, oh, we've left our families and jobs to follow this man. We have a lot at stake. We believe he's the one. Why does he keep irritating the existing leaders? When things started looking up, People wanted to take him and, and force him to be king. He refused and walk away. He hates this. He's turned into an idol. Oh my God, I'm, I'm seriously going to get like roasted in, if uh, any of my people knew I was about to say this. He, oh, I just lost my train of thought. It scared me so much it left. Oh, he, he didn't want to be king. It's not about, that's what it was. It's not about Jesus. <laughs> it's all about you. Why is he digging his own grave? Why does he make such hard statements? These are valid questions, but we're not supposed to think. The offense was beginning to mount in these men who had left all to follow Jesus. Well, that's valid too. I quit my job and followed you across the country, and I have nothing to show for it. All I have is this dumb t-shirt. And again, the offense. What, what words is he masking with that? No, it's fear. It's, it's worry. It's, it's like doubt. Stress. Yeah, anxiety. It's just questioning. Did I, did I do the right thing? And again, this is him putting these words in these people's heads. We don't know that that's actually what they were thinking. Exactly. Because when you walk away from this with that mind language from these men, what is he preaching now? This is too far out for me. <laughs> and it's in quotes. Like, <laughs> what's he quoting? No, then he finally goes... Uh, for the disciples saw that stra- the straw had bro- that broke the camel's back. Okay, that's not in the Bible. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. You can understand it. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? And the thing about Jesus is, like, let's, you know, it, it would be stressful to leave your job and your family and follow Jesus because deep down you know that something's going on here. And Jesus doesn't care. Oh, you regret doing this? You know what you're getting into. Like, Jesus was kind of an ass sometimes. But that's that's that reading of it. What if it is... Oh my God, does this offend you? Did I... 
Oh, like maybe he cared? Maybe he cared. Maybe he cared. Like we read, we've been taught to read Jesus as this, this asshole, basically. Never crossed my mind to read that in a tone of him being concerned. And that is disturbing. So maybe the reading of that is, oh, shoot. Was that too far? Did I offend you? You know, the, the, the reading Jesus in an empathetic light as it being a, a new thought is just really, really bothers me. Uh, the, the offense built to the point where they did what many do today. They left. Jesus didn't beg these men. Please don't leave. I just lost most of my staff. How would I get along without you? No, he confronts them. Then he asks Peter, do you also want to go away? And Peter says, well, where else will we go? Which again, how did how did he ask that question? Maybe he was bummed out. Wait, are you going to go too? And Peter's like, well, where else am I going to go? What if this human man had human feelings? That's heresy. You can't think. You can't feel. Oh, then next we come to the drinking of the blood. I often say that trials and tests locate a person. In other words, they determine... They reveal the true condition of your heart. How you react under pressure is how the real you reacts. And it's like, if you put my head in a vice, it's going to hurt. Okay? All people. If you burn me, it will hurt. I'm not going to just sit around and not... Did you... You said something along those lines one time, I think. About pain. About, like, yes, I'm having a, I'm having a giant reaction. That was the brilliant but Elizabeth one of my episodes when she was talking about yeah because I even I underline this you know how you react under pressure is how the real you react and I was like is this true because so much of Christianity hinges on that <laughs> like no you're being put in the crucible and you're being tested and you're being ground into you know whatever coal turned into diamonds by pressure and and so Elizabeth was like no that's that's ridiculous that's been conditioning this whole time because, yeah, if you burn me, what's underneath is going to come out, but it's not supposed to be out. Right. You're right. You're right. That, that part of me shouldn't be out, and I'm going to have a reaction to it. I'm going to try to keep it in. Right. And that might be the most primal me. Yeah, you you put me in a vice. You burn me. I'm probably going to scream. I'm probably going to scratch. I'm going to do things I would not normally do on a normal day to get out of the situation. But to say that that is who I actually am. And then that's bad. And that that is bad. Why is that bad? Because even the, even this context is nothing. And I was like, ooh, the real you is going to come out. Well, you better behave. Right. You better be a psychopath and be able to not flinch when someone burns a cigarette out of your arm. Because who who is supposed to be afraid of the real me? I'm supposed to be afraid of that? No, you're afraid of that. You don't want to see the real me. Because you don't want to deal with that. Yes, you don't want to see the real me. You are protecting yourself from me. Whoever that is. From me. You're protecting yourself from me for when you hurt me. Because he's already admitted earlier that that's going to happen. Submit to authority. It's disturbing. Do you think... I mean, and I'm being way too generous right now. And I I feel like you're going to say no. Do you think that, like, it's... Because there, we, you know, there are like sociopaths. I'm sure uh, in the higher ups of the evangelical world. But do you think that, like, on a conscious level, it's actually how can I control these people? To a certain extent, yes. Like, I don't think. I think he doesn't think it's malicious. Like, I think he thinks these people need to be controlled. I have the word. I know how to do this. 
And this is what's best for them. Because again, everything's in light of eternity, right? And they're all hellbound. So it is my responsibility to help these people think the right way, feel the right way. So just like he won't use any other word than offense, I think he would find every other word but control. But it is ultimately control. Controlling. Um, no conflict resolution. No communication. Forceful repression and manipulation. Just the, the control over relationships is disturbing. The manipulation, the whataboutism, the double talk, and the use of, of like simple, simple language for doing such vast damage. Is the whole book like this? What else is he talking about? I mean, this, it, how, I don't understand. He covered it all in this chapter. I don't, I don't know what else he could possibly talk about. It's just reiteration. It's just different ways of saying the same thing over and over again. And pulling in more stories. There's too much. So we'll finish out this chapter. I will say, like, his little story about these two houses. Oh, the terrible five-story house and single-story plain shack on the foundation. I just can't. I'm like, Brooke, why all the liberties? That scripture does not talk about these houses being vastly different. Like, the whole point is that they look the same. Only difference is the foundation. Right. So for you to put, oh, this house is opulent and five stories and wonderful... And guess what? What's your house look like, John Bevere? What's your house look like? Is it a shanty? Are you all, do you, are your five kids sleeping in, a, in one bed? Come on. Was the five-story house really your house? But again, just the dissonance. Who are you in this story? John, like, you have no self-reflection. Keep yourself humble. That, like, the, to make sure, like what you said, the two houses are supposed to be the same. The point is the foundation. And then to make sure that the, the house with a good foundation is the, is the rundown shack. Just to make sure that you stay humble. You. I, you it's stay like, humble. why that detail? You, you. Yes. My, my five-story house has already been built. Couldn't help. Couldn't be helped. Couldn't be helped. It's just, is he a pastor of a church? I think so. Actually, I don't know. Here's a, here's a fun fact. Just discovered when Faye and I were talking, and we were trying to remember which game first. Was it chicken or the egg? Who rose first? Was it John or Lisa? She really was into Lisa Bevere, and I was like, I'm, I'm pretty sure John was first. Like, I knew John Bevere before Lisa Bevere. See, I knew so Lisa we, before. So we went to look it up. Neither Bevere has a Wikipedia page. What? <laughs> what? That kind of gave me chills. <laughs> what? How can that be? I, I do not know. I don't know what kind of dark web black magic but neither of them have a wikipedia page look it up try to find it how can that be how can that be so that's disturbing so everything all information available about them is from them about them so that's weird that's just yes what you said what dark forces are these what did they have to conjure oh that's so disturbing that's not where I thought you were going with that. <laughs> Who could have seen that coming? They did. That was the first time I got a little bit scared about anything that I'm doing. That's truly disturbing. But I probably should have seen that coming. Because in the preface of this book, John Bevere says, 
The book you hold is quite possibly the most important confrontation with truth you'll encounter in your lifetime. And then towards the end of the preface, this book is not a theory. It is God's word made flesh. Thoughts? How is that okay? Like he really, that's, you think a lot of yourself. That's very disturbing. That's extremely disturbing. It kind of makes you wonder, like the, the Bible studies and churches that are pushing, still allowing this book to have, have you read, have you read the preface? You know, like, did you read that? Did you see what he just said about himself, but his own writing? That's disturbing. Yeah, that, that the religious leaders, you're calling yourself the word of God. Well, this is, and he's, well, this is what they, this is what they felt when Jesus said it. It makes me angry. It makes me angry because people are afraid. You're, you're capitalizing. I do. I think it's ridiculous. Yes. Everything in that book is ridiculous, but it's sad because I do feel sad for people trapped in there. And it comes back to the fear and like, they're afraid they will believe that because they're afraid of eternal damnation. They are afraid for their children. They're afraid for their family and they're afraid. And you are there. That's what, that's what you're peddling fear. And like, and you're really fucking with people because what you said, perfect love casts out all fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind and be not afraid. It's all about fear. I have uh, family members who think Halloween is like, my mom literally called it the devil's birthday. Of course, there was no trick-or-treating when I was growing up. Of course not. There was harvest festivals. Like, my costumes were, like, so embarrassing. Like, I got dressed up as a lamp to be the light of the world or something like that. Just ridiculous, ridiculousness. So now I'm all really excited, you know, like, because my, my kid's old enough to enjoy dressing up and, like, I was always fine with the costume part, and it's it's a huge problem, you know, because there's people who are afraid. And like I had I had this moment. It's like, why are you afraid? We're laughing in death's face. We do this on Easter. We're saying we're not. We're saying we're going out and saying we're not scared of you. We're not scared. We're dressing up, making fun of death, the most terrifying thing that apparently you're supposed to be immune from because you have the salvation ticket. Why are you so afraid? Are you living in fear? Or are you not living in fear? Please choose. Please choose. So with all of that in mind, who is this book for? The congregation. People trying to think. It would have been for me, you know, I had a pivotal moment. And, and I could have gone down the other side of the hill. If, if I had been intercepted when I started to think, that's, that's, that's who that book is for, I think, people who are trying to think. So looking at this book from the perspective that everything is permissible. I cannot stop John Bevere from writing a book. But not everything is beneficial. So on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being beneficial for everyone, 5, permissible, it's neutral, it's just there, and 1 being harmful for everyone, where would you place the bait of Satan? Well, I thought I knew how to answer that question. And then as we dove into it deeper, this is like toxic waste. This is like negative one. This is bad. This is worse than I thought. Because I, I, I remember looking at your little scale. And I was like, I could put it at a one. It's like, it's a, a, or two. It's just kind of hard. This is just poorly written bullshit. But it 
oh, I hate this term, lays a foundation for, for mind control, for controlling your thoughts, for controlling your feelings. Very disturbing. This is very, this is reprehensible. He's, he's responsible for a lot of people's pain. I don't know how else to say it. This is bad. It's dangerous. Imagine if it was good writing. And the scary thing is, is that it didn't have to be. This book has been rocking for damn near 30 years. He is still being platformed with this. And it's, it's bad. It is bad in every conceivable way. It is bad in the way it uses scripture. It's bad in the way it uses its own theme. The way it just throws a fence around. It's bad writing. It's awful. It's an awful book from every angle. And this man has built five-story houses from this revenue. See, that's, that's, what, that's what Jesus was fighting. The way you can string scripture together, and like, that's why they don't want to have the conversations. This is dangerous, and this is what, this is what Jesus was, this is what he did not stand for. This is what he was doing, was freeing people. This is what he meant when he was saying, you've heard it said, but I say. <laughs> and here comes John Bevere. You've heard it said, but Jesus said, but I say. Yes. He anointed himself with the power. He, he Didn't he call it the word of God? Not a theory. Arrogant. That's the, I mean, I just don't have words anymore for that. I'm really disturbed. So John got to choose his issue. If you got to choose an issue as the bait of Satan, and you got to have his platform. So every church had to let you in, had to let you speak on it and make them confront it. What would that issue be? Uh, the physical gathering of a church. You can't. I wouldn't be invited very many places because I would go in and I would say, look around you. Who's on top? What is a shepherd? What is a pastor? It's a shepherd. Are you shepherded? Did you take notes in your life journal today? And then tomorrow morning, you don't know how you're going to get your kids to school and get to work on time. Is your shepherd going to help you with that? I'm sorry. There should not be. You don't want the government. You don't want people in need to be funded by the government. But you're driving a new car. We know where that money's coming from. People, you know this. You, you're giving the money. What are you getting back? Are you struggling financially? Like, because that, that's what they do is they break up your life. So I'm having trouble paying my rent. I'm having trouble getting food, but I will go to church. Like that, getting getting food and housing is a separate problem than my spiritual well-being. And like, that's not true. And they say things as far as the Lord's, the kingdom of heaven is here now on earth as it is in heaven. And, and it just, how they really manipulate people and, and, and they don't care for people. The leadership doesn't care for people. Get out. Unless you're in a building and you do like what they do in Acts and pool your resources and, you know, figure out, who, okay, now who needs food this week? Who needs a ride this day? Go to your, can you go to your shepherd and say, I can't, I don't have a ride to work on Wednesday afternoon. Okay, if I'm the shepherd, what I do is I try to find somebody to get that person to ride. And if I can't find somebody and I'm not extended in another way at that time, I take them. Like, you, if you are you being cared for? Because if you're not being cared for in your personal life, then that's that's abuse. That's abnormal usage of power. That's abuse. 
it's not it's not okay you need to be cared for in your personal life and in your church life they're two they shouldn't be two separate things and that doesn't really answer your question but it's something i'm passionate about that absolutely <laughs> answers the question oh good <laughs> good so bait of satan 10 out of 10 would not recommend so what is something that you would recommend what is something i would recommend okay I would recommend the Marcus Borg books. Are, oh, he has, uh, oh, dang it, there's one that's really great. Uh, he talks about feeling, when you're feeling close to God is like being in a thin spot. When you're feeling especially close to the spiritual world, you're in a thin spot and finding thin spots throughout your life. Uh, Marcus Borg was a, he's a, a great writer as far as uh, knowing history of the Bible and the history of how it was written and uh, it gives very more like actual facts and things and context of what things might, might mean. I really enjoyed Love Wins by Rob Bell. That was kind of uh, controversial for him. I mean, it's very brave, you know, very brave. Oh shoot, I have so I have so many things that I like to read. I just uh, if you like if you're still reading the Bible, um, about that I mean the New Testament, the, the voice translation is very about a focus on liberation and freedom. I don't feel like I'm reading I don't read it much anymore, but um, it was really helpful to me when I was coming out of reading the Bible because I enjoyed it and it was helpful. Those are some things that I really enjoy. All right, good things. Thank you for that list. And thank you for thank you for doing this. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the conversation. It's very helpful to me. I'm not gonna pretend I didn't get anything out of talking to you. It's great. I really enjoy it. I haven't engaged in a conversation out loud about this kind of thing. It's all been through, you know, texts with random people that are that aren't physically near me or, you know, like harassing strangers online. making them engage with me about stuff so i really appreciate it thank you and in closing be sure that you build your life on god's revealed word not what others say keep seeking the lord and listening to your heart don't do or say things just because everyone else does seek him and stand on what is illuminated in your heart this book is so infuriating because taken out of john's awful stupid context that last paragraph could be great advice yes listen to your heart But it's coming at the end of a chapter that has positioned what John Bevere claims God has said to him as what God is speaking to your heart. And I just, the audacity, the caucasity is surreal. And like I said at the beginning, frightening. We are halfway through this book now. Yay and yikes. And I am currently halfway or more, I hope, through a breakthrough case of the Omicron variant. So, I mean, I run low on patience with John Bevere at the best of times, and today is not one of those days. So, let's get to the stats and put this garbage in its place. The chapter is ten and a half pages long. The word offended is used four times. The word offense is used eight times. The word offensive still does not exist. And the word offend is used once when Jesus, mean, mean, asshole Jesus, confronts the disciples with the question of, does what I say offend you? Words I would replace offended with in this chapter are scared, hurt, disturbed, worried. And in that question Jesus asked the disciples, I might actually let the word offend stand. 
because as is so often the case with John, all my theology is bad, Bevere, every day is opposite day, and he has to go out of his way to make the most logical conclusion, make a sharp U-turn into nonsense. In that situation, Jesus is saying things that are offending the religious leaders, that are offensive to them, and the standard way of doing religious things. And so the people who were offended and followed that offense dug their hills in deeper and stood opposed to Jesus. Jesus was saying there's a new way and the offended people were saying no way. But somehow in JB's twisted nonsensical economy, the thing to do with offense today is stick with the old way. He does a lot of what he probably thinks is fancy footwork, but is actually embarrassingly uncoordinated stumbling to try and make it seem like the thing to do is to stick with Jesus, and that means sticking with the church, even though everything about the story he's using is actually saying the opposite. It is such a bad, bad reading of that story, and it's no surprise because it is classic JB. Coming into this project, I wanted to be as impartial as possible, to give John Bevere the benefit of the doubt and to just deal with the writing. But the writing is so bad and so baseless, I have become more and more curious about John Bevere and where he gets the nerve. This book is his brainchild. At this point, I feel safe in saying it has come from him and him alone, not from any reasonable reading of scripture, and not from a good God. This is the work and creation of a man on a mission to do what? Help? Who? He claims it's to help the reader, but it's not true. This book might accidentally have a few general helpful tips, but none of them are worth the price of admission, and none of them outweigh the overall danger of this book. I don't know what John Bevere's intention was in writing this book, I can certainly speculate, but only God knows for sure. I don't even know that John Bevere knows why his theology is as awful as it is, and why he insists on pushing it, but I do think he is aware that he is a questionable character with questionable credentials. As we mentioned toward the end there, John and Lisa Bevere do not have Wikipedia pages, so all of the readily available information about them, and there isn't much, is information that they provide. So what do we know about John Bevere? He is married to Lisa Bevere. In fact, if you Google John Bevere, her name and picture will come up first. From what I remember of hearing them give brief sketches of their testimonies, John was a super Christian boy and she was a super worldly girl introduced to Christianity by John. Together they have four children, four sons who seem to be fully bought into the evangelical dynasty and why not? They are wealthy white men in a world built for them. Together, John and Lisa run Messenger International. Founded in 1990 by John and Lisa Bevere, Messenger International exists to develop uncompromising followers of Christ who've transformed their world. Their About Us says, We're on a mission to revolutionize global discipleship by providing translated resources to everyone everywhere. But when you look a little closer, you quickly realize that the only resources they are translating and sending around the world are theirs. So John and Lisa really believe their shit belongs on the global stage, and I have to say I am impressed by the hustle. These people are out here with zero credentials, shipping their bad, bad theology around the world. So when I think of Christian publishing, I think Zondervan and Thomas Nelson. So as it became more and more clear how bad the theology in the Bait of Satan is, I looked to see who published it, like which one of them let this stinker get by and continue to exist, and found out that it was, it was neither of them. This book was published by a smaller imprint, Charisma House, which is associated with Charisma Magazine. And upon closer inspection, I'm not sure about Lisa's books, I didn't look into her, but it turns out a large number of John's books have been published by Messenger International, which, as you may remember from a minute ago, is run by John Bevere. 
So my man's is out here writing books, publishing them, and then translating them in-house as a favor to the world. And I truly, truly do appreciate the hustle. There's something very inspirational in all that. And if what he's shilling wasn't such toxic theology, I'd give him all the applause. His entire resume, the one that he shares, is based on credentials he has given himself. But there is another resume. As Elizabeth mentioned in the Chapter 4 episode, the first version of this book had a foreword by Benny Hinn, because that was the minister John Bevere was groomed by. Before striking out on his own, John was a youth pastor and then personal assistant to Benny Hinn. And if you don't know who Benny Hinn is, count your blessings that you haven't been hit with every trauma stick. And if you do know who Benny Hinn is and don't really want to make a judgment call on him one way or the other, I mean, let JB make the call for you. He spent years under that man and does not seem to want people to know that now. So this chapter was awful, the book is awful, and all of John Bevere's theology is awful because it has to be. It's all John Bevere has ever known, and it's the only way for him to make sense of his world without having to acknowledge how warped it is. A question I've been kicking around lately, just in my own head, just for fun, is at this point in history, American history, church history, should white men be writing books for anyone other than white men? Like, is there anything John Bevere has to say that is anything of value to me? It just seems to me that worldview, the white man worldview, is so prevalent and has had the microphone for so long that anything they have to say is redundant, even if it's something good. Nothing John Bevere has to say is good, but if tomorrow he woke up and had something worthwhile to say about racism or feminism or the love of God, he is so far behind, it is infuriating to think about how entitled he would feel to be platformed. It is infuriating now to think about how much room he has been given, how much damage he's been allowed to do based on his own recommendation of himself. This chapter has 19 scripture references. All of them have been put through JB's ringer, so everyone should feel free to disregard all of his interpretations. Disregard this entire chapter and only listen to the bit JB chose to highlight. What we learn in the presence of God cannot be learned in the presence of men. John Bevere is not the presence of God. This book is not the presence of God. The presence of God cannot be summed up or limited to any one person or book or theology, and nobody else can tell you or gets to tell you what what exactly it should look like or sound like to you. John Bevere has a very limited and limiting worldview. His perspective of God absolutely bums me out, but it is his perspective to have and he is welcome to it, but no one else should be taking it as gospel because it's not. It's not good news. But the fact that it exists kind of is. When you consider that John Bevere is a scripturally uneducated dude with a questionable Christian background who is out here crafting theologies out of thin, abusive air, well, what's to stop you from doing the same? You do not have to listen to John Bevere's interpretations of anything. You can if you want to, but he is not owed and you do not have to give him any more credit than anyone else. If you are going to take anything away from this book, let it be the freedom to reimagine scripture. John Bevere takes that story of Jesus asking the disciples those two questions and he turns it into some kind of confrontation. But the testy, irritated vibe he attributes to Jesus isn't found in the text. The irritation and the testing are in the eye of the beholder, and John Bevere sees that everywhere. Because that's his worldview. But in mine, I see Jesus more and more as a man trying to reconcile the belief system he was handed with the world he was trying to see. 
And as a marginalized man saying and doing things that weren't winning him many points with the religious leaders, I think he was asking genuine questions. He wanted to know what the streets were saying, and then he wanted to know what his friends thought. And when Peter says, you are the Christ, and then Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, and on this rock I will build my church, We've been taught that Peter recognizing Jesus as the Christ is the rock. But what if the rock Jesus wanted his church to be built on wasn't what was revealed, but how it was revealed? Because if you finish reading that passage, Jesus tells the disciples not to tell anyone about him being the Christ, which is an awful church growth strategy if that revelation is the main thing. But I think the rock Jesus wanted his church to be built on is people hearing from God themselves not waiting for or living off of the revelations of other flesh and blood. Either it's a simple faith or it's not. If it needs all the supplemental material, if it needs John Bevere to create a whole new theology and write a whole ass bad book about a huge potentially eternity affecting truth contained in an obscure word of a random verse, then all is lost. And since even John Bevere obviously doesn't think believing Christ is the Messiah is foundational enough or revelatory enough or enough at all, feel free to listen to him just this once and remember. Be sure that you build your life on God's revealed word, not what others say. And very few people are more others than the basic bad theology bummer that is John Bevere. So go with God and leave that man and his awful theology behind. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bad Book Club. I certainly hope you had a better time listening to this episode than I did reading that chapter. The foundations of this book are surely located somewhere in the swamps of sadness from the never-ending story, and the walk score is a solid negative eight. If you are enjoying this podcast, please remember that sharing is caring. Please tell your friends and leave us a review on Apple. And remember to show love to my guests, hit the show notes for info on where and how to find, follow, and support them, and to check out the links to better things than the bait of Satan. Feel free to hit me via email, my DMs, or the comment section of Instagram. I am Janice Legata, and this has been another episode of Bad Words, but here are some good ones. From Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Cobes Dumay. Evangelicals claim to uphold the Bible as the highest authority in the Christian life, but there are more than 31,000 verses in the Bible. Which ones are considered essential guides to faithful Christian practice, and which are readily ignored or explained away? In like manner, when evangelicals define themselves in terms of Christ's atonement, or as disciples of a risen Christ, what sort of Jesus are they imagining? Is their savior a conquering warrior, a man's man who takes no prisoners and wages holy war? Or is he a sacrificial lamb who offers himself up for the restoration of all things? How one answers these questions will determine what it looks like to follow Jesus.